0: welcome back to the horrors hi i'm elise i'm shay cannibal power hour commences cannibal power hour is back we went with a summer barbecue theme this year (laughs) yeah (laughs) what it was september last year that we did this maybe it was september no it was september i think
1: oh my gosh well you're right summer barbecue what else could you want than to sit back and relax with your friends and eat some ribs (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) there's
1: nothing else i want
0: more So we're going back to basics and starting with one of the first cannibal exploitation films that started it all, 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
1: This movie is nothing like I thought it would be. I thought it was going to be much more stereotypical slasher. It wasn't. It was a lot more The Hills Have Eyes, Pearl and X which was cool. So I liked that I got, could see the through thread that I had been seeing and I could trace it back now to the origin. That was a very cool feeling. But it was more sad than I was expecting it to be. As far as Leatherface goes, I thought he was going to be more like Michael Myers, just totally ruthless, without feelings. But that's not entirely true, which is an interesting angle.
0: Yeah, he's a very sympathetic slasher boy. Yeah. He's a sweet boy. He's just trying to make dinner. <laughs>
1: And I understand that.
0: So jumping in with our ladies, we have Sally Hardesty, who is our final girl. She's played by Marilyn Burns. Marilyn Burns is also in Eaton Alive, Butcher Boys, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, and Texas Chainsaw 3D in some capacities. I think some of them are just like voice cameos or archival footage. She was inducted into the International Horror and Sci-Fi Hall of Fame in 2009 for her role in this film. And she sadly passed away in 2014 at the age of 65. She does a really good job in this movie, I think. She surely does. And she is joined by Pam, who I also enjoy her performance a lot. (laughs) She is played by Terry McMinn. Going into some pre-plot trivia, this is directed by Toby Hooper, who also directed The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Poltergeist, which is one of the first movies that we covered on this podcast, and one of my favorites. The miniseries Salem's Lot and lots of other horror films. He has also since passed away Director Toby Hooper claims to have gotten the idea for this film while standing in the hardware section of a crowded store while Christmas shopping. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, While thinking of the way to get through the crowd, he spotted the chainsaws. Oh my
1: gosh.
0: The film is fictional, but based loosely on the life of Wisconsin murderer Ed Gein. This is mostly through Ed Gein's propensity to rob graves and do little arts and crafts with the body parts. Wow. Which we see a lot of Leatherface doing later in the movie.
1: Yes, we do.
0: This movie is cited as a major inspiration for other horror films, such as Wes Craven's The Hills of Eyes, which we covered last Cannibal Power Hour, Ridley Scott's Alien, which we covered last month, and Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses, which we might cover eventually.
1: Is it good? Do you like that movie?
0: So the Rob Zombie movie that we've covered on this podcast, I feel is the most uncharacteristic movie of Rob Zombie's filmography so far. He's known for a lot of brutal violence and a lot of crazy, insane sequences. And while we do have that in The Lords of Salem, I feel like we haven't covered a true Rob Zombie film. And I feel like House of Thousand Corpses is probably one that is pretty characteristic of him. So maybe we'll cover that. I also know we've talked about covering his remake of Halloween, Yes. So that would be a really good one to do as well. Also, this film was inducted into the Horror Hall of Fame in 1990, among many other accolades praising the film over the years. So on the influences, Hooper has cited changes in the cultural and political landscape as central influences on the film. His intentional misinformation that the film you're about to see is true was a response to being lied to by the government about things that were going on all over the world, including Watergate, the 1973 oil crisis, and the massacres and atrocities in the Vietnam War. The lack of sentimentality and brutality of things that Hooper noticed while watching the local news, whose graphic coverage was epitomized by showing brains spilled out all over the road, led to his belief that man was the real monster here just wearing a different face. So I put a literal mask on the monster of my film.
1: And the literal mask on the monster is just another human face. Precisely. Whoa. That's... Kind of cool.
0: Yeah. And that comes from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre wiki. There's also a lot of historical context to this movie that I didn't go into a lot of in terms of the research, but this is obviously an aftermath of the Vietnam War. This is obviously a reaction to President Nixon, who prided himself on being the president to end the war. He said he was ending the war, and then he goes on to bomb Cambodia after saying those types of things. So a lot of this idea of being lied to by authority figures... That rolling text in the beginning telling you this is a real story is kind of like framing that sense of reference. Even if we look at the character of Drayton Sawyer, who is the gas station attendant, how we think to trust him and how he proves to be untrustworthy toward the end of the movie is obviously a nod to that. Also, just thinking about the rise in consumerism, capitalism, and industrial revolution. I think I even put this in post-plot trivia, but I can say it now. Leatherface is a member of the Sawyer family. A Sawyer is a person who uses a chainsaw. And some sources have also noted its resemblance to Sawney, a cannibal clan led by Sawney Bean in medieval Scotland but part of their trade is because they're butchers, right? Uh So like their trade in sawing up body parts and sawing up animal bodies and being butchers was something that was highly coveted, obviously, because they produce meat and they were wide distributors of meat. But we see the character of Franklin throughout the film talking about how technological evolutions have eliminated jobs for people who were once in these very grisly, very what seem to be inhumane professions. And this movie is almost a response to what happened to those people when technology like eliminates their jobs or leaves these populations behind or civilization goes closer toward the cities and less toward the outskirts like what is left and what is happening out there
1: and especially when jobs are so often
0: associated with one's identity precisely wow okay Ready to get into it? I am. All right. So we open with some text on a screen, oh which
1: I loved every second of the text on the screen.
0: Tell me what it says. Okay.
1: So it's August 18th, 1973. I don't have direct quotes from the text on the screen. Oh, Shay is here with direct quotes from the text on the screen.
0: You know I'm always here with the direct <laughs> okay, dialogue. Okay,
1: I honestly, maybe I do this on purpose. I just like when Shay reads quotes to me and I get to like relive the moment. <laughs>
0: Fun fact about this narration, this narration was paid for with a joint of marijuana from Toby Hooper to his friend who narrated this part of the film. That's amazing! Anyway, the film in which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular Sally Harsey and her invalid, yikes, that's me saying yikes, (laughs) brother Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young, but had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare.
1: And Here we go. So, after this beautiful text on a screen moment... It is revealed to us that several cemeteries in rural Texas have been vandalized in that several grave sites were dug up and some bodies even left arranged in bizarre sculpture positions. And this is kind of shown to us through this news coverage, but also we are seeing like close up shots of decomposing hands, fingers, a skull slowly kind of zooming out as we see a decomposing person posed as almost a scarecrow in a cemetery again as this news coverage is playing over. So, I think this introduction is really good.
0: Yeah, and especially the light flashing with like crime scene photography, mm. like that little like whine after the light winds down becomes very emblematic of just the franchise. Like very much how Friday the 13th has the ki 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 ma 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 sound uh, that Exactly. (laughs) That like sound of the light winding back down is present in a lot of the sequels as just like being attributed to the franchise. So we're hit with the title card and more opening credits as a news report talks over the imagery talking about explosions in storage bins, the spread of cholera, a string of suicides. So this has a lot to do with the feel of the 70s, how there was like no good news ever. Like it was post-war, there were all these travesties happening. It was always this like barrage of bad news. And this news coverage fades out. We pan to a dead armadillo on the road as a green van drives past and pauses. As we open the door, the news coverage softens, but we can tell they're listening to it on the radio as a man gets out of the truck, sets some wooden planks down, and assists another man in a wheelchair out of the back of the van so that he can use the bathroom in a coffee can. There's lots of intense POV shots from beyond and within the tall grass, kind of showing that they might not know where they are, but other people who are there can see that there's Mm. new people there, perhaps. A truck rolling past them kicks some dirt up and it startles Franklin, who is the man in the wheelchair. He loses his balance and his chair rolls down a gully and he falls out, spilling urine all over himself and everywhere. Poor
1: Franklin. This begins a bad day for him. Lots of bad days. Yep. (laughs) Anyway, they get Franklin back in the van. There's some conversation that this group are concerned that their grandfather's grave, who was in one of these cemeteries on the news, might have been vandalized. So they're on their way to see if that is or is not the case. So we, in this van, have Sally, our main girl with her boyfriend, Jerry. Her best friend, Pam, who is interested in the Zodiac. And you could pick her up and plop her right down into 2023.
0: And Absolutely. She, she would
1: make perfect sense. And her boyfriend, Kirk. And then, of course, Franklin.
0: Pam goes on reading a Zodiac book saying that malefic planets are now in retrograde. And since Saturn is malefic, malevolence is increased. So I guess malevolence... Or Maleficent? Isn't that like a bad person in Disney? I don't know. Yeah, in Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, I don't care. Um, (laughs) Roger that. (laughs) It's Angelina Jolie, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, okay. See, I know enough. That's all I gotta know. (laughs) Jerry and Kirk scoff at her, and they end up arriving at the cemetery where Sally wants to check on Granddaddy's grave. There is a drunk man laying in a tire facing the sun and going off about how he sees the things that happen around here. So obviously, it seems a little foreboding. Sally ends up walking with the sheriff and reporting back to Franklin, who is her brother, and the rest of her friends that the grave was fine. So they continue driving through the country and they smell something horrible. And it's because they are driving past a slaughterhouse where their grandfather actually used to work or sell their livestock to. Franklin talks about how they used to bash the cows heads in two or three times until they squeal. And now they don't really use a, you know, mallet or a sledgehammer. Now they use an air gun that will kill them more humanely or quickly. This very much upsets Pam, who argues how horrible it is to kill animals for food. Franklin's like, well, this is the reality of the situation. It's gotten a little bit better. But it's also bad because this machine took away how some people make their living. And this is where I was like, this is where we see the X parallels, like a bunch of friends driving in a van, remembering X, they drive past that cow that gets fucking eviscerated by that semi-truck or something like that. And it's the same thing. They're driving past this horrible smelling slaughterhouse. There's a lot of parallels here.
1: Shortly after this conversation, they see a hitchhiker on the side of the road. They pull over and pick him up. And I love how, is it Pam or Sally? Pam is like, what does he look like? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I I just like how somebody spoke up and at least sought more information. And again, you can't judge a book by its cover. But at least she was being real and being like, well, who is this guy? What does he look like? Should we let him in the van? They pull over, let this guy in the van. He's a young guy about their age. He's very thin and he's acting sort of erratically. He continues the conversation about the slaughterhouse Again, adding more graphic detail that serves to unsettle the audience, a.k.a. us. And he notices that Franklin has a knife with him. So he asks if he can hold it. Does he even ask or does no, he, he grab just it? No, he just takes it. He, he just, just takes, takes that's it. That's right. Okay. Because he doesn't have really good manners. Everybody except the driver is watching this happen. And it's like, I kind of love this moment too. You can tell that everyone realizes quickly that they let a total stranger into their van and they might pay for it but nobody wants to be mean about it. (laughs) They're just watching him with this knife instead of being like, let's cut this right here and get you out of the van. So he takes Franklin's knife and immediately slices across his hand very slowly and watches himself bleed. Everybody is very disturbed by this, but then he moves away in the conversation. He takes out his Polaroid camera and takes a picture of the group. Through his conversation, he invites them to dinner, but again, everybody is very put off by this guy. They decline working actively to avoid any sort of connection with him other than what they've already done and having him in the van. He then asks for payment for the picture and they decline that as well. And then he puts the Polaroid down on like a little overturned bucket of sorts, puts some like gunpowder on it and then sets it on fire in a moving vehicle. So of course everybody freaks out, And then he gets out his own knife. Or no, I think he uses Franklin's
0: knife still. No, he gets out his own knife because he tries to show it to Kirk and be like, isn't this cool? And Kirk's like, just put that away, please. But then he ends up slicing Franklin's arm with his own knife.
1: Uh Uh-huh. So then, of course, this is the last straw, right? This guy has had 14 last straws. So they pull over. The guys manage to throw him out of the van. But before they can drive away, he uses the blood from one of his own arm wounds and smears it on the side of the van as if to mark it.
0: Yeah, and we don't learn much about him in this interaction besides that he also works in the slaughterhouse industry. He called himself the killer, meaning he was somebody who did kill animals for his job. He giggles a lot. Me and Elise are even talking like he puts Linda in the Evil Dead to shame <laughs> with how much this man giggles. <laughs> And he even describes how they used to make head cheese with the heads of animals by boiling them down and taking all of their skins and muscles and ligaments and that they don't waste anything. And obviously, this is a visceral description, but I also think it's showing how he lives a life where you can't really spare anything.
1: I will say I thought it was noble. Like one of the points he made sure to say was that they didn't waste anything. Right. Because like kind of in that vein of thought, in this capitalist society where there is so much waste and disposable material, it's nice that he takes pride in not wasting something and being proud of the cheese that he makes with all of these things that feel so visceral to us.
0: So Sally bandages up Franklin's hand as Pam reads horoscopes to break the tension. Amen, sister. So she reads Franklin's. She says that you are to travel the country, have long-range plans, and upsetting persons around you might make this a disturbing and unpredictable day. I'll fucking say. Mm Mm-hmm. The events in the world are not doing much either to cheer one up. And then she reads Sally's, who is a Capricorn, and Capricorn is ruled by Saturn, who is in Maleficent, Angelina Jolie. Um,
1: (laughs) It's in retrograde, baby. It's in
0: retrograde, baby. (laughs) hers is there are moments where we cannot believe what is happening is really true pinch yourself you may find out what that is so they arrive at a gas station to find another man staring at the sun this is another fun piece of trivia this spot like this gas station is an actual barbecue restaurant now oh my gosh
1: that is awesome
0: my friend who recently went to texas went and tried it shut (laughs) up yep she's been there wow I think they have like an original like meat hook there <gasps> from later. Oh my God. That you can like take photos with and everything like that. It's crazy.
1: Well, if we ever go to Texas, we have to. Hell yeah. I don't really know if I want to go to Texas. I don't want to go to Texas like ever, January. but if
0: we're, if we're <laughs> ever stuck in Texas, we're going to make our way to this. <laughs> but they get to this gas station. The girls get out to use the restroom while the gas station attendant proceeds to wash their car but says they have no gas. They're waiting on a delivery. Jerry takes the opportunity to ask for directions, but the attendant says they don't want to go fooling around on other people's property. Some folks don't like it and they don't mind showing you. So again, showing they're very much in a conservative small town. The owner invites them to eat some barbecue while they wait for the gas truck transport. But instead, Jerry goes get some barbecue, gets direction to a different gas station, and they head off. So
1: at this point, the group are on their way to an old family house, the old family hardesty house. So they arrive at their destination and this house is dilapidated. It really looks like a safety hazard for them to even be like walking up the stairs on the second floor. Like the whole time I was convinced somebody was gonna fall through the floor. Everyone's inside except for Franklin, who is having a hard time navigating the property because he's in a wheelchair and there's weeds and brush and stairs everywhere. Like, this is not an environment fit for his wheelchair.
0: He's also really looking at the symbol that the guy left in blood on the back of the car, which I wrote curious that the guy washing their car did not wash that off.
1: (gasps) That... Is a really good point. I thought that was pretty intentional,
0: especially because of what we find out
1: later. Well, Franklin must have been thinking the same thing because he's kind of sitting there ruminating, talking out loud, thinking that his sister or his friends are still there, asking, do you think he's going to follow us? Yeah. But of course, when he turns around to see what his friends think, they're all inside the house. But eventually, Pam and Kirk come downstairs and ask about a swimming hole that's supposedly nearby. So Franklin gives them vague directions, like, over there, down the gully. So they set off on their way to go for a swim.
0: I was also laughing because as he's struggling to get through this brush and into the house, he's blowing raspberries in frustration and mocking his sister's laughing. And he's like, if I have any more fun today, I don't think I'm going to be able to take it. Like, pretty much (laughs) saying that, like, Sally's being like, come on, Franklin, it'll be fun he's like i'm like franklin it's me on a road trip like if you
1: like you if you franklin.
0: i'm like if you get me overwhelmed and you get me into a space that i can't navigate and i'm hot and i'm sweaty and i'm dehydrated i am blowing raspberries into the sky that is exactly <laughs> what i'm doing i am franklin in this moment 100 of the time so pam and kirk run off in search of the swimming hole but they find it all dried up but as they look up the hill they see a farmhouse and kirk thinks that they can try to barter for some gas from the owner's So they walk up to the farmhouse, they're looking at the property, and they find a bunch of cars under netting, which is very ominous. But also,
1: immediately, I was thinking of the hitchhiker and inviting people over to dinner. Mm -hmm. And I was like, is that a way to like trap people in their cars for gas or for the generator? Because there's a
0: generator going to. Sure, yeah. And it's also like they're doing exactly what the gas station guy said not to do because they're just walking all over this person's property.
1: This is also a reality of the 19... And not that I think everybody in the 1970s was nosing around everybody's business. I do not think that. But I do think it's something that was more common in the 1970s than... in the 2020s yeah and whenever it gets to this part of an older horror movie that we watch it is so hard for me to watch just because of how unbelievable it is based on my own experience exactly it always feels like almost a feature of fantasy at this point because of how strange it would be to do something like
0: this in the 2020s like you can't stand on somebody's front porch because their ring is going off no. and like all that kind of stuff. Or
1: even before that, like, I just feel like us growing up, it was so instilled in us. Like, you don't know who these people are. You don't know what they're going to think. You can't. And like, even me, like, I don't like answering the door.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know like I won't answer the door and especially spam calls. Nobody picks up their phone anymore even if they don't recognize the number. Anyway, this scene's like this just do not age well because of I think how increasingly protective people are becoming when it comes to interactions with people that they don't know.
0: So Kirk knocks on the door, no one's answering. He finds a tooth on the porch and scares Pam with it so that she storms off. What a dick. <laughs> That is so rude! But Kirk knocks one more time, and as he knocks, the door flies open. So he calls inside a bunch of times, saying like, hello, hello, hello. And he ends up hearing a pig squealing from inside, or what he thinks is a pig squealing from inside. So he like lets himself in. And as Kirk makes his way towards the noise within the house, he trips through a threshold into another room and is very quickly banged over the head with a sledgehammer, which I wrote, ooh, because they talked about that's how they originally killed the livestock is just banging them over the head with a sledgehammer. So it's a very traditional method, which is, again, giving you a little bit more context into how this family used to make their living and now they're no longer needed. And is dragged inside by our first appearance of Leatherface, which is just a large man wearing another person's face as a mask.
1: It's very meta. Tis. <laughs> so, boom, Kirk is down. He's our first kill. When I love the moment, he's dragged back into the room and then a metal hatch is shut. Oh, yeah. It's very ominous.
0: It's very, like... That kind of image, I think, was made famous by obviously this movie, but then later saw like the game over, like slamming up the door.
1: I don't know that, but I you think you will know it will when you see down. it. Yeah. An Easter egg, a Taylor Swift Easter egg. Anyway, Pam is outside on a swing having a nice time, but obviously Kirk doesn't come back from investigating, so she decides she's going to go in the house and have a look for him too.
0: I wrote, Pam's got back, and I'm not talking about her ass. Her whole, her whole back. And this scene is so infamous, the way that it's shot from below and she's just like approaching the house and the house looks so much bigger uh-huh. than her. I also really admire that she has no tan lines.
1: Like she's very tan, she has no back tan lines. You know she's topless out there in the sun. <laughs> All the time. Pam, she'll do what it takes to get that golden glow. Pam
0: will spray the Pam. She'll spray the Pam.
1: <laughs> Can you believe that that's what people in the 70s used to do? They used to put like cooking oil on themselves. I can't imagine. My
0: skin could never. No. Whose skin? I'm not, I'm too sensitive. (laughs) I'm too sensitive. I like look at the sun. I make eye contact with the sun and I get a sunburn. I can't do it.
1: (laughs) So Pam and her back go inside the house and she accidentally falls on the floor. She stumbles into some hazard on the floor. I thought this scene was so cool because as she's looking around, trying to get her bearings for what room she just fell into, the camera angle is showing us her perspective. So we're seeing shots of the floor first, as if through her eyes, we see all these discarded bones, pieces of human skulls, a human foot, we see feathers, we see a chicken in a cage. And this is a scene that lasts a while. It's not just like a one, two, three scream. It's like a one, two, three, four, all the way up to 25 images that she takes in before she hurls and starts to panic
0: and scream. I wrote home decor of my dreams, if you ask me, because there's like rib cages <laughs> hanging from the ceiling. There's some skulls. Later, we see like a couch, which its entire backbone is just made up of bones. Like I'm like, this is cool as shit. Like Motherface is a crafty motherfucker.
1: Is this where we see that weird image of like the skull and then like the bone, and it's like a weird horizontally elongated skull? I think that's the backboard
0: of the couch. Of the couch. Okay, so that is what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That reminded me a lot of The Silence of the Lambs. Okay. When that man is, like, suspended from the ceiling.
0: Yeah. Which we haven't covered yet, but we will. But we will, but
1: that is probably the second to last movie that I've seen before this podcast.
0: But anyway, yeah, so she screams, of course.
1: I would too. Screaming, crying, throwing up. Yeah, but of course, Leatherface is there.
0: Yeah, so Leatherface pops out of the room, and as she tries to run out of the front door, as she breaks through the screen door, he bear hugs her and carries her back inside. And that is also a tourist attraction, or it used to be, at least. You could take a photo, like, hugging your partner from behind as if you're leatherface like Oh my god. Through
1: scream I love how you're, like, nerding out over there, and I'm, like, shocked <laughs>
0: and appalled. <laughs> well, it's funny because, like, obviously you follow Dead Neat, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre is Chelsea's favorite movie of all time. And, like, I think for one of her birthday trips, or they were in Texas for some sort of con or whatever, and they went to the house, and James, like, lifted her from behind on that porch, and it was, like, a very cute moment. that's very thoughtful it is very thoughtful (laughs) oh but leatherface carries her back inside his little lair this man's got strength right because pam's no slouch she's fighting she's turning she's twisting but he puts that bear back to use because he lifts her up and hangs her on a meat hook via her back (sighs) where (sighs) it's impaling her As she screams, he then takes a chainsaw and begins dismembering Kirk who is laying on a table in front of her and she watches and screams as he dismembers her boyfriend. But that's the thing. Like when she is placed on a hook, we don't see the impact. We don't see the blood. We just see the reaction, right? I have to say, I know
1: that there are remakes of this movie and I would be absolutely terrified to watch them. Oh yeah. Because you're right. We know what happens. We don't see it. Those, I'm
0: sure they're going to show us. Some during the plot trivia. For Pam's meat hook death scene, Terry McMahon was actually held up by a nylon cord that went between her legs, which were padded with maxi pads. Despite the padding, it was still quite painful. And Uh, she she decided to use that pain to make her performance more believable.
1: I'm sorry. Just because they're called maxi pads doesn't mean they should be padding your coochie as you hang in thin air. Nope. (laughs) Oh my god, that sounds worse than like a bike seat at a spin cycle class. I wouldn't know, but I'm sure you would. I only took one, and can you guess why I did not return? I'm guessing it was that. I'll probably
0: go back one day, because I know we both have a dear friend who loves to cycle. You also know that I have not been to one group fitness class, even the ones that you taught in college. Well, one time you... (laughs) (laughs) One time? (laughs) Wait, one time? I was applying
1: to be a group fitness instructor, and I had to fill my class but something wasn't working so Shay went back to my dorm and brought my laptop and stood in the back of my class in her like leather jacket and like ripped jeans and Vans to make sure my laptop didn't die yeah well wow. i did do that and i did get the job so thank you i joked
0: <laughs> i joked that i swiped into our fitness center 3 times throughout my college career and one of them was for that time. And the other two were because I was giving LGBTQ sensitivity training to their staff. <laughs> Otherwise, I have never like clocked in to that fitness center <laughs> for my own use. But back at the car, Franklin, Sally and Jerry wait for Pam and Kirk, but they're not coming back. So Jerry takes off looking for Pam and Kirk's like, just stay here. I'm going to come right back. But Franklin is still very much worried about the hitchhiker He's worried about the hitchhiker following them. We're joining Jerry as he wanders the woods, calling for Kirk. He approaches the house, knocks, peers inside, but sees nothing. But he ends up hearing giggling from inside, opens the door, steps inside, because he thinks they're messing with them. Mm -hmm. He thinks that Pam and Kirk are playing a joke on him. And as he wanders back into Leatherface's workspace, he sees the bloody hook, but Pam is not on it, and the chainsaw on the table. But he hears banging from within the deep freezer. No. He opens it and it's Pam. Pam is in the deep freezer and she's like trying to get out. She's flailing. But as Jerry is distracted by this, Leatherface comes out and hits Jerry over the head, shoves Pam back inside the deep freezer. I think this is when we start to really get like the characterization of how he is or how his temperament is because he runs about the house in a panic. He like sits and looks out the window. He's burying his face in his hands, and then he's soothing himself. Through a close up that we get of him licking his teeth as we get a close up on his mask for the first time, which we see is stitched together from other people's skins.
1: So, it is now fully nighttime, and it's just Franklin and Sally. Jerry is not back because he was killed with a sledgehammer. Sally is pretty insistent on going to look for the others. She doesn't want to go anywhere without Jerry, but Franklin is trying to convince her that they should go to the gas station instead. They have a whole argument about this. I appreciate this moment as well. It feels like a very real moment between brother and sister that we haven't had up until this point. But Sally insists, I'm going to look for the others, whether you like it or not, whether you're going to let me have the flashlight or not, I'm going. So then Franklin is like, okay, I'm going to go with you. He doesn't want to be left behind. So he and Sally have to work together to move through the woods together and get his wheelchair over like the woods and the thick brush and things like that. So as they are moving through the woods, they start hearing the generator going, which I kind of appreciate as like a scare factor, but also like, why do you need that?
0: Yeah. They don't really use it besides for light, I guess. Maybe that's what the whole house is run on. All the deep
1: freezers. I guess. Yeah. All all the deep freezers. freezers, You're right. (laughs) You're right. That old house does not have the electric system for all those deep freezers. I can tell you that. They're coming up close to the house feeling slightly optimistic about maybe asking for help. But before they even are within 100 yards of the house, they are suddenly attacked by Leatherface. And Franklin takes the blow. He is stabbed slash rammed multiple times with a chainsaw as Sally watches in horror at her brother's murder. She turns around and flees. She is horrified, terrified. And Leatherface is literally always directly behind her in pursuit. This is my beef with the movie. Can I tell you? Please tell me. Leatherface is always too close to Sally. You can tell that he is not running as
0: fast as he can run. There's literally trivia about this. Because the actor who played Leatherface, even though he was in weighted boots and carrying a chainsaw, no matter what, he was always running faster than Marilyn Burns could run. So there's even scenes where he just stops and starts cutting some trees and we're like, what the fuck are you doing? Are you trying to clear a path? Like, what are you doing? Because he had to look as lackadaisical as possible because if he ran at full speed, he was passing her. Yeah. Every single time.
1: And I mean, also, like, how tall do you think she is? She's, like, 5'2". Maybe. He's, like, a massive... Like, his stride would just totally engulf her stride. And so it just bothered me. And not even so much in the woods, like, in this moment right now. Because you're right. There are moments he stops. He clears a path.
0: You're so right. Marilyn Burns is 5'2". I'm sorry. I just had to fact Are you fucking that. serious? I'm fucking serious.
1: Why am I so good at this? <laughs> <laughs>
0: But anyway,
1: aside from me being like really good at guessing that one person's height, it does make sense in this moment for him to stop and like try to carve a path through like the thickets of brush. It does make sense. But later, it is comical to me. I'm not saying that this isn't a good movie, but I am saying maybe we could have reworked that somehow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Leatherface is pursuing her from behind. They go through some brush, some roughage. She's screaming for help. She runs inside and locks Leatherface out and runs up the stairs as Leatherface starts sawing his way through the door. She runs into a bedroom to see a man, a very, very old man, sitting in a chair and starts begging him for help. And then she turns and sees a dead woman sitting in in a chair next to him. So she's she's like, like decomposing. Yes, like absolutely dead. So she's like, oh, fuck, this is no good. So she runs back downstairs just as Otherface bursts through the door, forcing her to run upstairs and out the window. She falls on the ground, limps away as Otherface joins her back on the first floor and runs outside after her. I wrote, this boy is agile, running with a loaded running weapon like that. I just thought of two more things
1: that I have problems with. Please tell me. (laughs) Okay, so the first, I'll go chronologically from the last bit you said. First, why did they do this old man's makeup like this?
0: (laughs) He is gray. I don't know the answer, but I know it was supposed to be extreme.
1: It is so incredibly extreme. The second. (laughs) This isn't something I have beef with. It's just something that's unfortunate. So Sally is wearing these like really cute, high-waisted, white, bell-bottom jeans. But they literally shine like the moon Mm -hmm. as she's trying to run through the woods. There is nothing that is going to give her away more than these pants. I don't know if that was on purpose. I don't know if it's the whole, like, the final girl should wear white and look pure. She's, like she's wearing a hippie. This, yeah, yeah, this, like, white lavender set. She looks so
0: cute and pure. But you can just see her. I mean, I think it's intentional, but I also see how it's vastly inconvenient. I felt so bad for her. I was like, oh, honey. Even if you wore
1: the blue jeans today. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It just cut down on, like, how much is reflecting off of your body right now. We're black at all but times. But they are so cute. They were really cute. But now they're ripped because she jumped out a window. And she is running away, running away. Leatherface is in pursuit behind her. I wish I could say hundred yards, but it's like a foot. <laughs> she eventually makes it to the gas station and gets inside. And once she's inside, of course, the man from before is there. She starts screaming, please help me, please help me. He's trying to help her. And Leatherface is just gone. He doesn't even bother coming inside. Sally sits down, the gas station attendant says, we don't have a phone, we'll have to get in the truck to get you somewhere safe. And as Sally is sitting, waiting for the gas station attendant to get his shit together, she stares into the smoke pit where the barbecue is made, which is the barbecue that they ate earlier on their way to the Hardesty house in the first place. I don't know, this to me said... There's human meat in there. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Is that what you were picking up? I mean, yeah. Nobody says anything. And she doesn't even really say anything.
0: I think it's the shape of the meat that really does it. Because it doesn't look like it's just like a leg of like a chicken or something like that. It's very weirdly shaped. I think she's getting a sense that perhaps this man can't be trusted. And that's confirmed. When the (laughs) gas station attendant drives the truck up. And brings in a potato sack and rope and then asks her to just cooperate. I fucking hate this guy. Yeah. This guy's
1: the worst. He is.
0: And this is what I was talking about earlier where it's like, this person says, I'm going to get you help. We're going to drive to the neighbor's place and call 911. Everything's going to be okay. To then beating her with a broom handle into submission, tying her up, throwing a potato sack over her and loading her into his truck. So she's semi-unconscious. He's
1: driving her back. As he's getting near to the dreaded house, he sees the hitchhiker from earlier, starts berating him, and then we realize that they all live there. The gas station
0: attendant, the hitchhiker, and Leatherface as one big happy family. Yes, the gas station attendant is the hitchhiker and Leatherface's father, and his name is Drayton. Drayton? Drayton Sawyer. So they get Sally inside. She has become conscious now. She's
1: screaming, and this begins... The screaming sequence that really puts Brenda to shame from The Hills Have Eyes. It does. It is constant. And I will say, of course, just like Brenda from The Hills Have Eyes, I mean, these prolonged screaming sequences.
0: She's got a reason. She
1: does. (laughs) And I, look, same. It feels very genuine. There's nothing about it that feels like forced or unnecessary, but it certainly is uncomfortable. I'm sure that's exactly why they do it and have direct her to make these choices because it is so uncomfortable and it's heartbreaking. And this scene feels like it lasts 45 minutes, like Sally being in the house and waiting to see what these three men are going to do to her. It is
0: unsettling. And this is where we get the context that they are a family, because as Drayton beats the hitchhiker on the side of the road, he calls him an idiot and says, they almost caught you. I told you to stay out of that graveyard, which is showing that the hitchhiker is in charge of the grave robbing. Drayton also says to the hitchhiker, I told you not to leave your brother alone. You better hope he didn't let any of those kids loose. So, okay. Oof. The hitchhiker and Leatherface are brothers. Mm. And obviously this man is acting in a very authoritarian way to them. Maybe he's an older brother. I took it as their father and son because of the age difference. I don't know. But as they drag her inside, Leatherface, now in a Miss outfire wig, in a different mask... Whimpers and retreats as Drayton yells at him for letting her go. And the hitchhiker ties her to a chair and takes the bag off, which reveals that they know each other because they've met earlier in the film. And the hitchhiker uses this as an opportunity to really get under her skin, poke at her, be like, I thought you was in a hurry, terrifying her further. And I have to say, Sally is tied to a chair, and the arms of the
1: chair are literal human arms. Other arms. This is also another interesting theme with not only cannibalism, but taxidermy. I don't have anything to say about that. I just want to say these are here together.
0: They also have a full body skeleton lamp next to her. And I wrote, I "I would like this lamp, please. (laughs) Of course you would. Because it's just like shining out of the rib cage. And I thought it was like really cool. All right, I'll keep that in mind for your birthday next year. Thank you so much. (laughs) So they bring grandpa downstairs to join the party because he's still alive, even though grandma is not. So if grandma's dead, then where's wife? Where's wifey? There is no wifey. I know. That's part of the reading we got later. Are you fucking serious? Kind of. I'm so excited. (laughs) I'm so
1: excited. Okay, great.
0: So the hitchhiker sits Sally at the head of a table as he pulls up grandpa next to her. They slice her finger open and put it in Grandpa's mouth for him to suck her blood until she passes out. During the plot trivia, Gunnar Hansen, who plays Leatherface, recalls shooting the sequence where they cut Sally's finger and try feeding the blood to Grandpa. The tube that shot the fake blood kept clogging, and finally, after several takes without the tube working right, Hansen simply sliced Marilyn Burns's finger open. And the reason was, he explains, at this point, we were insane. His only desire at that point in shooting was to get the film done. He didn't care about his fellow actor's well-being, and this sequence was shot in the back end of a 27-hour workday. He also notes there wasn't much acting going on in this scene. (laughs) Wow. And we'll go on to explain the conditions of this scene once we explain what's happening. Okay, okay. So
1: yeah, Grandpa is sucking Sally's finger. It's gross. It's gross she passes out from the trauma shortly after she blurs back into consciousness when she's at the dinner table. She's still
0: seated there, but now she's conscious. Yeah,
1: And I love that there's family drama going on with the guest. Like the brothers, the father, they're fighting. Grandpa's not saying anything. He is on death's door. The other three are fighting. It's kind of funny. I love the drama. The hitchhiker calls his father just the cook. Okay, which again, sewing this cannibal thread, which is really so much less obvious than it is in some of the other Cannibal Power Hour movies that we covered. Sally tries to plead with him, but again, it's no use. There's a lot of screaming. This is when we get some background about Grandpa. So it turns out that Grandpa used to work at the slaughterhouse and was the best with the sledgehammer (laughs) there ever was. And they decide in honor of Grandpa's reputation he can kill Sally with the sledgehammer. So they pull Sally over, they put her head over a bucket to catch the blood and Leatherface keeps trying to give grandpa a sledgehammer that he is barely able to hit Sally with. I think he gets a couple of blows. One actually does draw blood because it is a sledgehammer. Like even if you just drop it, it's going to hit. But everyone's getting frustrated. They're trying to get this girl killed. They want grandpa to do it for some reason. And in the heat of the moment, Sally's able to break free and hurl herself out a window again, which I love. I love how she was like, you know what I'm going to do again? Throw myself out a window. It works so well the first time. She lands outside on the grass just as morning
0: is arriving. So some more about this scene. During the filming of the dinner scene, it was actually broad daylight outside with no air conditioning inside of the house. This meant that they had to have blackout curtains, which only made the house hotter. The temperature inside would sometimes rise to over 120 <gasps> degrees Fahrenheit. And because of all of the animal bones and carcasses <gasps> that were real... No. Yes, This intense amount of heat began to make the smell absolutely unbearable. Many of the actors said that they would have to go outside and vomit only to come back in and finish recording. Edwin Neal, who played the hitchhiker, claimed, Filming that scene was the worst time of my life, and I had been in Vietnam with people trying to kill me, so I guess that shows how bad it was. Are you serious? I didn't know all that stuff was real. Yeah, they got all the animal carcasses from veterinarians. I mean, more context just about that scene generally... We get Drayton say that he doesn't take no pleasure in killing and how the hitchhiker goes on to say that he's just a cook, but also that him and Leatherface do all the work that he doesn't like to do. And I feel like this plays into the vegetarian reading of the movie in the sense where Leatherface and the hitchhiker are doing the dirty work that no one likes to think about happens when they consume meat, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I consume meat, but like, yeah. I eat mm-hmm. meat, but like no one wants to feel like they're killing the baby cow that they pet at the petting zoo, right? So Drayton saying, I don't take pleasure in killing is almost like that person who's avoiding the atrocities of what it actually is to work in a slaughterhouse or to be a farmer. But there's a very ugly and inhumane side to it. But everyone just wants to turn the blind eye and buy their steaks at the grocery store, right? So I feel like that has a lot to do with that reading of it. And it's also heightened when Sally is screaming and the hitchhiker is mocking her. And the mocking noises are dubbed over by animal sounds. It's squealing. It's crying Mm. by cows. It's clucking. A lot of animal sounds fill the air to cover up Sally's screaming. So again, it's that idea that she's being tortured. (gasps) This takes me back to Pam. The moment where Pam is on the
1: floor of Bones Mm -hmm. and there's the chicken in the room with her, her and the chicken become one because of the camera shots back and forth between the two and then eventually she's the one on the meat hook. So that's so interesting that you're pointing out those animal sounds here with Sally. You're right, like she is the animal, like being slaughtered, she is one with all of the animals.
0: And the dinner is probably other people. It's probably Kirk. Yes! Oh my God. Yeah, it's definitely fucking Kirk. And also, Pam, are we just assuming that she's dead? If you ask Terry McGinn, who plays Pam, she thinks that she survived. She's like, I think she got out of the fridge. I think she's a fighter. I think she made it out. But like her fate is never confirmed or denied.
1: Yeah, because I keep trying to think, like, how could she have ever gotten out and down the road into a car? Do you know what I mean? Like, how could she have ever gotten out of there? Well,
0: because Sally barely makes it out. So let's talk about how.
1: Let's do it. So again, she breaks free because everyone's distracted. So as she is trying to run down the street, the hitchhiker and Leatherface come out of the house and chase Sally. The hitchhiker has a knife. Leatherface, of course, has his trademark chainsaw the hitchhiker almost catches her. He gets her by the hair, he stabs her in the back, but all of a sudden a semi-truck comes down the road. So it happens so fast that this semi-truck comes, the hitchhiker is still in the road, and the truck just totally runs over the hitchhiker. And I thought this was like the most graphic part of the movie, Mm -hmm. aside from the finger sucking, which is like graphic for a different reason. But he, like, gets run over. Like, you can see him get run over. I think it stands up pretty well. Like, it was... I think so. And especially at this point in the movie, like, I would not expect the movie to show this. So I feel like it could have caught an off guard, like, feeling safe with the amount of gore the movie was willing to show and then having to sit through this. Anyway, so he's dead. The Hitchhiker is dead. That just leaves Leatherface against Sally. Of course, the semi-truck driver pulls over. Sally runs up to him screaming, help me, help me, help me. He gets her into the truck. But then instead of just driving away, they get out the other side. I'm like, why the fuck don't you just take off? This is my other issue. I didn't realize I had so many issues, but this is
0: my other issue. Why, why? I don't know if it was just that he was sawing through the door and he thought that that was scary, so they thought they had better chance on foot, but, like, fucking no. No.
1: Drive the car! Especially because they're in a semi-truck. It's not like they're in a little sedan. Yeah. They're, like, up high. You know what I mean? I feel like they would have had more time. They get out the other side of the car. They're running down the road. The truck driver... We never see him again. We never see him again. He's able to run <laughs> far away. Sally, of course, she has jumped out of many windows. Yeah, She's struggling. She's doing her best to run away. Conveniently, a pickup truck driver comes down over the hill. He does a Yui.
0: She climbs in the back seat. And the truck drives away as she screams, cries, laughs as Otherface swings his chainsaw around in the street. That's the movie. So some more trivia about that moment. Marilyn Burns, beyond relieved once filming was finally complete, recalled being told the night that filming wrapped that due to a problem with one of the shots, she would need to return to the set for more filming. So that last shot where she's in the pickup truck, she says, when I was crazy at the end of the movie, laughing hysterically, that wasn't acting. That was me having to go back and do it one more time. Like she was so mentally done at that point that that reaction was just like fully fucking being exhausted and done and tired.
1: No. And she had to go back.
0: I feel for her. It was also noted that her clothes or her costume was so stained with fake blood by the end of shooting that they were solid. Like you could break them over your knee because of how soaked they were with blood. Oh no, I feel so bad. So going into some post-plot trivia and discussion, this movie obviously spanned a franchise spanning six sequels and two remakes, the most recent of which coming out in 2022, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, with screenplay by Fede Alvarez, who wrote (gasps) Evil Dead 2013, but this one is laughably bad. No. It's really bad. It's on Netflix. I didn't like it very much. It's fucking ridiculous. What makes it bad? Is it just over the top? so over the top. So Sally comes back as like an older woman trying to like save like the new youths in this movie. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. And fucking Leatherface picks her up through her abdomen by a chainsaw, holds her on the chainsaw, and then throws her into some garbage bags, yet she still has the nerve after being fucking impaled by a chainsaw for multiple minutes and blood spurting everywhere to sit up and shoot him, and then, like, have a full conversation afterwards. Like, there's just some weird Mm. fucking shit to it that it's, like, fantastical and horrible, but there's also some scenes that I like a lot where it's graphic and gory and horrible. It's just graphic without being good, Mm. you know? Okay, all right. So, despite being called the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, only one person is killed by a chainsaw in this film, being Franklin. Kirk was dismembered by a chainsaw, but he was killed by a sledgehammer. We don't know that Pym ever died. Mm-hmm. And Jerry was also killed by being banged over the head with something. Yeah. Huh. So going over some broad themes that are present throughout the movie, I mentioned earlier that you could talk for days and days and days about the academic or historical value that this movie brings to slashers, to horror cinema generally, but going over some broad themes and then going a little deeper into themes having to do with gender representation and all those types of things... So some of the broad themes being one, exploitation, mm. which is a genre of exploitation film that relies on stereotypical and often negative depiction of rural whites in the American South and Appalachia. This movie is a prime example of exploitation, like being afraid of poor people, being afraid of people who exist in a different way of life than you may. Another one being vegetarianism, which I've brought up a couple times. So in a video essay, film critic Rob Egger describes the irony in humans being slaughtered for meat, putting humans in the position of being slaughtered like farm animals. Director Toby Huber has confirmed that it's a film about meat and even gave up meat while making the film, saying, in a way, I thought the heart of the film was about meat. It's about the chain of life and killing sentient beings. Another being the Industrial Revolution or consumerism at large. So Robin Wood, who is a horror film scholar, characterizes Leatherface and his family as victims of industrial capitalism, their jobs as slaughterhouse workers having been rendered obsolete by technological advances. He states that the picture brings to focus a spirit of negativity that seems to lie not far below the surface of the modern collective consciousness. So again, the idea that these folks are relying on cannibalism to survive because their livelihood was taken away from them because of technological advances, what happens to these forgotten families who've been doing the same thing for generations and making a living, and now that's taken away from them. And obviously this movie is very much credited in the rise of the trope of the final girl. So critics argue that even in exploitation films in which the ratio of male and female deaths is roughly equal, the images that linger will be of the violence committed against female characters. The specific case of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre provides support for this argument. Three men are killed in quick fashion, but one woman is brutally slaughtered, hung on a meat hook, and the surviving woman endures much physical and mental torture. So going into some themes I wanted to explore more deeply, one of which is Leatherface's masks and his overall gender performance. So this comes from an article, If Looks Could Kill, He Wouldn't Need a Chainsaw, Gender, Transgenderism, and Leatherface in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series by a pseudonym Transylvania, but in her bio she identifies as a trans woman. She writes, The violence of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is perhaps the most oft-discussed facet for me, however, despite its brutality, the violence pales in comparison to the psychological torment inflicted upon the film's final girl, Sally Hardesty, played with such horrific realism by Marilyn Burns, that the fact that her performance often gets overlooked is a travesty. And that's true, because a lot of times when people ask who the first final girl was, they say... Laurie Strode. Laurie Strode. Exactly. But, yeah, but exact, it's wrong. But it's wrong. <laughs> it's it's her. Which, again, is something we can discuss a little later. So she goes on to say, this is never clearer than in the film's now iconic and deeply disturbing dinner scene. Sally, having attempted to escape from the murderous cannibalistic clan that has offed her friends, is dragged back to their farmhouse and placed at the head of the dinner table. It is here that Hooper reveals his twisted nuclear family in all their blood-soaked, psychopathic glory, an aging, almost corpse-like grandpa, an overworked, abusive patriarch, a gibbering, twitchy youngster, and of course, the mother of this nightmarish bunch, Leatherface himself, complete with an apron and, um, a woman's face. Hooper's depiction of Leatherface as the would-be matriarch of the family sits almost entirely within the realms of the first film, at least, inside of his vicious take on consumerist nuclear family structure. But it marks the beginning of the series' ongoing exploration of gender and gender identity through Leatherface, and through that, its troubling depiction of transgenderism. Admittedly, on the basis of the first film alone, this reading is a bit of a stretch. Hooper's movie shows little to no interest in Leatherface as a gender-bending character outside of this warped nuclear family, and while the now-iconic masked killer does take on the traditionally female roles, preparing the food, serving dinner, etc., the movie seems to be far more focused on cannibalism as capitalism and the erosion of traditional American values. As Robin Wood puts it in his influential essay, An Introduction to the American Horror Film, in The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, cannibalism represents the ultimate in possessiveness, hence the logical end of human relations under capitalism. That's not to say Hooper was entirely without interest in this facet of Leatherface's personality mind. It's worth noting that Leatherface changes what mask he is wearing depending on the task he appears to be doing throughout the film. Oh. He wears the mask of an old woman while doing housework, he dons the aforementioned woman's face while dishing out dinner, and then there is perhaps the most recognizable and iconic mask which he wears while murdering his victims and preparing them for consumption. Is it still a woman's face? I don't know. I think it's more overtly feminine in like the apron one and the makeup one at the yeah. dinner table because it's wearing makeup and paired with a woman's wig, whereas the murdering one isn't as much. But I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Moreover, unlike other iconic mask slashers such as Jason Voorhees in the Friday the 13th series or Michael Myers in Halloween, Leatherface's masks do not appear to be an effort to obscure his identity, rather they are the direct opposite. His identity alters depending on the mask he is wearing. In terms of a trans reading, this could be seen as somewhat troubling, given it would suggest that trans folk are not only masking up and hiding behind it, but that they are doing so by taking on the faces of women. It's a suggestion that leans into the idea that sees trans women positioned as imposters, as perpetuators, rather than victims of male violence. It's also worth bringing up the fact that the film presents itself as a recreation of true events. The opening text crawl and monologue, something that would become a staple of the franchise moving forward, directly encourages audience to take the film as if it were fact. That it was also inspired by real-life serial killer Ed Gein, whose gruesome exploits also inspired Hitchcock's Psycho and Jonathan Dems' The Silence of the Lambs, should also be mentioned. This essentially invites real-world comparisons, and in doing so adds to the damaging representation of transgenderism already present throughout. However, much these aspects of the film cannot be ignored, the optimist in me chooses to read it more positively. Leatherface's gender swapping and mask wearing have absolutely nothing to do with his family's eating habits or his role as a killer. In fact, is almost left entirely unexplored and unmentioned in the film. He is simply whomever he identifies as at any given moment, and the rest of the family seems to accept this as given. Of course, we can't ignore the fact that we're talking about a group of sadistic, cannibalistic murderers, (laughs) but I digress. The point is, as noted by Red Broadwell in their fantastic article for Gaily Dreadful, unlike the other killers mentioned, there is no surprise unmasking of Leatherface. His true face is never revealed. This makes his masks his identity, Mm. emphasizing further by the fact that he has different masks for whatever role he decides to perform. In terms of a trans reading of the film, this serves to both distance Leatherface's gender identity from his role as a killer, and yet also intrinsically link the two. The film presents this facet of his personality as yet another element of the nightmarish onslaught of horror Sally and her friends are subjected to. And I'd argue by making these masks presumably the faces of Leatherface's prior victims, it goes one step further, really accentuating the idea espoused by the self-proclaimed so-called gender-critical feminists that position trans women as violent male subjects infiltrating women's spaces and appropriating women's bodies. I mean, literally stealing women's faces to wear as your own is the most (laughs) on-the-nose form of appropriation you can get. As the series would progress, the gender-swapping aspect of Leatherface would be brought further into the forefront until finally it becomes one of his most defining traits. This focus on gender does actually sort of make sense, especially when placed in the context of Wood's other influential essay, Return of the Oppressed. In it, Wood observes that commercial cinema has analogies with mass dreaming. Horror films are our collective nightmares. Given this context and Wood's own Freudian readings, we can see gender fall into the category of sexual repression. And as Wood notes, what is repressed must always struggle to return in however disguised or distorted a form. To put simply, Leatherface's gender bending in Hooper's 1974 original is both an allusion to the warped return of the so-called traditional nuclear family <gasps> and a manifestation of sexual repression and gender confusion.
1: Wow. That is really interesting. Like the idea of Leatherface's gender representation as a part of like this strange nuclear family foreshadowing the return of this one size fits all nuclear family narrative. Right.
0: And I also like what she said about there is no unmasking of Leatherface. And if there was, it was showing this element of like deceit of like, this isn't who you think you are, you're hiding who you truly are. This is how Leatherface sees himself is like this agglomeration of all the people that he has killed. And he's going to take on these different identities based on these people's faces. We do see him, like, take on these very effeminate roles, and he very much cowers to, like, male dominance. So it is very interesting. Well, I think it could also say,
1: you know, if he is somebody that's taking on multiple identities, he's also going to be taking in intel from the world around him to choose those identities. So maybe he sees himself in this house of men and is like, well, we need a mother, do you know what I mean? Or like, where's his mother? Maybe he, in his grief or trauma, took on her role. Right. Right? Like, it's interesting to think about what makes Leatherface feel like he needs to take on feminine roles. Is it because men aren't supposed to do the cleaning or the kitchen work? You know, like, what is the narrative being fed to him that he makes these choices based on? Mm-hmm. If we're looking at it through that lens, like Leatherface choosing his identities based on what he wants to
0: be at that time. Right. Right. So another theme I just thought was so interesting was witchcraft, tarot and horoscope mm. in this movie. Yeah. And this is where I found this very strange article, astrofeminism in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the Love Witch from the website Anatomy of Scream. <laughs> and we didn't think that this would come up. And granted, I cut out the pieces that had to do with the Love Witch because we're focusing on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But there's very interesting relations between the two. Mm. So this, this article was very interesting. But this is kind of on the idea that there are supernatural forces at work and there are elements of... Obviously, the horoscope was mentioned a lot. So Mm -hmm. speaking a little bit to that, this writer writes, Hooper aligns the character of Franklin with the film's other women, often positioning him as queered, effeminate other. As a result, his misfortune is undeniably heightened, forcing Franklin to become the particularly susceptible target for the cosmos. Just like his horoscope will predict, Franklin has been cursed to have a disturbing and unpredictable day. Notably, the first sacrificial ritual in Chainsaw is not his bloodletting in the van, but in our introduction to the ill-fated youth. Spooked by the velocity of a Mack truck, Franklin tumbles down the hill and out of his wheelchair, spilling a canister filled with his urine onto the parched soil. He now lies, swallowed by the dry grass, wincing up into the unrelenting sun. He has unwittingly partaken in a bodily offering, an (gasps) ominous commencement of his own death spell. It is through this ritual that Franklin has wielded an unsung agency over his own death, not yet able to harness it for his own survival. He has given the cosmos a taste of kismet, and soon the fields of Texas will claim the rest of him. Remember the piss bottle in The Love Witch. (gasps) Yes! Right? The urine bottle in The Love Witch. It's a spell. And this (sighs) is his spell. Uh Uh-huh. Oh my god. Wow. Crazy. Many critics have argued that despite Hooper's use of astrological symbolism, the characters are merely helpless victims of a universe unfolding without reason. But this is not actually so. In his essay, Hearths of Darkness, Tony Williams, Tony Williams claims that Pam's dependence on the occult is her denial to explain rational events escaping into illusionary explanations, while John Muir argues that Hooper's point is not that astrology is a credible and valuable tool, it is that life is totally random. Denying Pam and Sally's credibility in their beliefs is a way for male critics to trivialize feminized interests like astrology as irrational, therefore disempowering them further. But Williams and Muir are not the only ones dismissing Pam's interests. Jerry and Pam's boyfriend Kirk disparage and mock her as she protectively reads her friend's horoscopes aloud. The men are too preoccupied in belittling her to realize that she is prophesizing their doom. For Pam, the astrology books become vehicles of insight, instilling a heightened sense of caution in allowing her to remain the voice of reason and objecting to Jerry picking up the weird-looking hitchhiker. Mm-hmm. Jerry, of course, ignores her. Later, still honoring her instincts, Pam pleads with Kirk repeatedly to leave the Sawyer house. It's his skepticism of her that leads him deeper inside, becoming the first victim to succumb to the fate Pam predicted. The men's disavowal of her warnings is indicative of the destructive fallout that comes from dismissing women's legitimacy. And another part of this article that I didn't want to quote because it was too long, but it was still interesting, was the mention of the sun and the moon and how often they're both shown in the movie. Like, even if you look at the symbolism of the upside down armadillo or the drunk on the tire or yes! the gas station attendant, they're all staring at the sun in reverse, right? So they're all retrograde. Uh-huh. So they're all like looking at it, which is like a foreboding thing. Like we see a lot of instances <gasps> of people staring at the sun. An inverted tarot card, uh-huh. which usually means bad things. Precisely. And then even they talked about the close in on Sally's irises as she's screaming and how that's being dubbed with the moon. There's a lot of shots of the moon as Sally is running through the brush and everything like that. So how those could be interpreted as tarot cards as well. They have more incited words to explain all of that, but it was a little too long and I didn't want to make this longer than it had to be. But like so fucking interesting because obviously I wanted to give perspective to Pam as well because Sally is like the final girl of this movie. But Pam is the one that's being like, guys, no, the entire time she has the one with insight. And part of the reason she's trivialized is because she's this little hippy dippy vegetarian who believes in tarot and horoscopes. You know what interests
1: me about Pam? Yeah. Is when the movie starts, all eyes are on Pam. Yeah. Sally, I felt like became the final girl almost because she had more time to collect the intel of her missing friends. Mm -hmm. Whereas Pam was one of the first to go. Say Jerry and Sally were the ones that went to the watering hole first. Sure. Like, I feel like Pam could have easily been the final girl yes 100%. i feel like these two women are matched like they're both smart they're aware they're quick like i feel like it could have been either one of them and
0: sally had the advantage of time so this goes on to my last question is sally a final girl because there's people that argue the opposite so this- how could they possibly argue the opposite i'm gonna tell you this comes from the Sally Hardesty wiki, which oh. is, <laughs> I know she's got her own. And this comes from an agglomeration of scholars talking about her. So scholar James Rose believes that Sally and Laurie have a lot of similarities. Laurie being Laurie Strode from Halloween. Describing possibly the most significant impact Hooper's film has had upon the genre is its sustained trauma of Sally Hardesty. The juxtaposition of her terrible plight but eventual survival seemingly reconfigured the genre and created, as Carol Clover has termed it, the character of the final girl. Yet, for all her endurance, Sally is not the first final girl, but more a survivor who stands alongside Halloween's Laurie Strode, for as much as they both survive, each, in the end, require male intervention to fully save them from the narrative's male protagonist. Sally is rescued by a passing driver, while Laurie is saved by Dr. Loomis. Despite this, both Sally and Lori combine make manifest the key attributes of the final girl as both struggled, endured, and in Lori's case, attacked their aggressor until they could escape and be saved. In the slasher films that followed in the wake of Chainsaw and Halloween, the final girl steadily gains in strength and she herself vanquishes the male antagonist. He goes on to state the difference between the two. It is this that prevents Sally from being a true final girl, for she, unlike Lori and all the others that followed, never turns upon her aggressors and attacks them. Mm. Instead, she simply endures, runs from them, and by chance seizes an opportunity to escape. Well, what the fuck is
1: she gonna do when her aggressor has a chainsaw?
0: However, this is not to disagree with Clover's positioning of Sally as a final girl as she does endure, and it is what makes her so noteworthy. And that's the end of the quote. But, I mean, like, I see both sides, right? Because, obviously, she has all the hallmarks of somebody who endures, right? And somebody that survives. She makes it to the end of the movie. But it is a little deviating from the script in the fact that, like, she doesn't discover her dead friends. She does not inflict Mm. harm upon the Sawyer family. Literally, the reason that she is able to escape is because the hitchhiker gets cocky and is like, I want to kill her. Give me the sledgehammer. And then he lets go of her hair. And then she Mm. runs. And if the truck driver hadn't pulled over, what would have happened, right? And that's not to say that that takes away from her resilience or that it takes away from her wanting to survive or anything like that. But with Laurie Strode, we do see her attacking Michael with the clothes hanger, attacking him with the knitting needle, and all of those other things. There's at least some sense of tussling that occurs in her own defense where Sally is just evading it the entire time. That's not to take anything away from Sally. Like, I don't want to call her not a final girl, but... Right, I see what you're saying.
1: Like, if we're looking at the genre conventions... Yes. Her conventions are different. Because you're right, there's not the final girl circuit. The fighting back, which is an interesting element that I never thought about, which is brought up here, which, yes, we don't see her fighting back. But I do feel like at the same time... Because whenever I think of like a final girl, like I think of an extension of a real woman in a real traumatizing situation. That's fair. Yeah. And so when I look at Sally, I look at her reaction to her trauma as something that's very realistic. Because not every final girl who survives her trauma is going to fight back.
0: If they can run, they will run. Exactly. They
1: will run or they will sit. They will wait. They will cooperate. They will cry. Like, I feel like she maybe conventionally doesn't represent the same things that some of our other final girls do, but she still is a finer girl in that she survives and she does it in an equally valid way. She does it in the way that makes sense for her situation. Yes, And that I think would also make sense for a lot of other people in a lot of other situations. Now, maybe I shouldn't be building bridges between like fact and fiction, but at the same time, I guess that's a connection I've been making in my head that I
0: haven't really realized until this conversation. I mean, I didn't think that people didn't see Sally as one until I saw that there was some contention about the idea because people do call Laurie Strode the first final girl and everyone's like, justice for Sally Hardesty. But then people also argue that Sally Hardesty didn't really do anything. She just ran.
1: I'm kind of wondering, like, if Sally Hardesty came after Laurie Strode, would she get the same flack? Or is it because she came first, then Laurie Strode came, and then those were the conventions that caught on?
0: But if Laurie Strode wasn't building upon something, would the Final Girl trope be a thing? That's a big thing to consider. I
1: agree. I mean, this is huge. What is this, 1974? This is three years, right? Before Halloween. Four. Four. Yeah. So, like, I mean, this feels like quite the milestone And especially because if you're looking at this, because I know we brought up the title Psycho before, if you're looking at this as a reaction to Psycho, this is already so different from Psycho because our lead protagonist in Psycho was killed halfway into the movie. Mm -hmm. Here we have a, a woman who makes it to the end. It doesn't matter if she's running and screaming. She's looking for outs the whole time. She's jumping through windows. She's running the first chance somebody lets go of her hair. She's running for help. You know what I mean? Like, you can't say that she's not thinking the whole time. She may be screaming, but she's thinking.
0: She's not Brenda who's just screaming.
1: Brenda, I fucking love Brenda, but she is just screaming. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, yeah, so I, I don't know, like, I'm just kind of thinking, as far as a progression goes, it's interesting when you think about these literary elements, or, you know, film conventions, like, just because a movie is a blueprint that catches on doesn't mean that it invalidates what comes before it, right? Does it have to?
0: And that's what I saw a lot of other people saying is that she does not necessarily offer a furtherance in feminist representation, being that she's very much in a victimized position the entire time, Mm. but she does set a precedent to build on. Like if Sally Hardesty didn't survive at the end of the movie, would there be a precedent of letting women survive at the end of the movie? Right. Like there always has to be like a first stop on the train, right? Mm -hmm. So like, that's kind of how I view it, where is she the most resilient final girl? Would she win final girl March Madness? I don't think so but like without her would we have an Aaron from your next I don't think so either can I tell you what in my mind
1: locks her in as a final girl tell me her fucking giggle at the end of the movie her fucking giggle you cannot tell me that she's still in a victimized position when she is being carted away in some random pickup truck and she's laughing to herself like that's a moment
0: even if Marilyn Burns is just sleep deprived and Even being if horrible. She is. It's her character. That's, that's canon. It's what like, it is. Yeah, That
1: is the moment. Final girl's giggle at the end of the movie. Yeah.
0: She's a final girl. That's her ready or not lighting of the cigarette and saying in-laws. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Like that's the moment. Mm-hmm. And I bet you any money, like not only did she set the precedent of surviving a movie as a woman, like you said, it's canon. Like that's the first moment you see the victim at the end be like, Whoa, crazy! Light my cigarette. Did just the did that? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like that's a moment of reflection. She fucking laughs.
0: It's so funny that we're talking so much about Laurie Strode in Halloween 2018. They ride away in the back of that pickup truck. <gasps> Stop! It's all connected. Oh my god, horror is just like sucking each other in each other's
1: faces <laughs> all the fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this was uh, pretty crazy. What do you think now that we've discussed it? I love it. You love it? <laughs> I adore it. This feels like Pennsylvania, the Keystone State to me. Texas Chainsaw Massacre feels like the Keystone movie to me. It feels like it fit in. It filled in some gaps as far as the timeline goes for horror itself. And it also like filled in some of the themes that we've been seeing in other movies that helped me see where they originated from. You know, not only just like the scenes with the pickup truck or the scenes with the cattle, the slaughterhouse, the farmhouse, some of the themes in The Hills Have Eyes from last year's Cannibal Power Hour, also the final girl. Like, it feels like this makes a lot of sense. It was cool to have this conversation. You know when you're like working on a puzzle? I was
0: just literally thinking about that analogy where it's like, we're missing someone's eye right now. Yeah, like I feel like there's
1: a big piece and there are all these like holes and I feel like I just... We just we you with your research <laughs> filled in all these holes, and now I can run my hands over the puzzle yeah. and be like, "Ooh,
0: like this whole section." I is get it done. now. I get it now. Yeah. I can see the full picture. <laughs> Which it is so funny that we're doing this so late into our game. Obviously, when we started this, we didn't know we would get this far, and we didn't know that we. <laughs> That's would- <laughs> correct. <laughs> And we didn't know that, like, we would be creating so many holes. But now I feel like there's so many things that we can be like, oh, that's so X, or oh, that's so this. And I'm like, no, it's so Texas Chainsaw. Mm -hmm. And people can stop, like, yelling at me for that. But (laughs) we've done it. We've covered another seminal one. And like I said, I'm sure I missed some blind spots. I'm sure there's another interpretation out there that I wasn't able to speak to because this movie has been studied and written about at this point for almost, like, 50 years. So... You know, I can only do so much to catch up, but that was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I'm sure,
1: like you said, any blind spots you feel, there is always going to be another opportunity to talk about those moments, like through the lens of some other film. Like I feel like if anything, the last couple of weeks where we hit on so many themes of different horror movies and they overlap with the Stepford Wives and Gothic literature, like it'll come up. And, you know, if you have any recommendations, movies you want us to talk about or themes that we missed you want us to bring up, feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. We are always willing to continue the conversation, bring up other points in our episodes, and or follow us on Instagram at thehorrorspodcast.
0: And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye.